You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Well, guys, good morning. Um, if, if you're just joining us today, I just want to say uh, we're, we're part of the way through a series uh, called It Takes a Village, and we're going to continue with, with it today. So if you are joining us, let me just tell you there's kind of two things to it. One is I'm quite intentionally trying to speak into parenting. The other one is I'm kind of quite intentionally trying to speak into raising spiritual sons and daughters, and we'll explain a bit of that as we go along. But I know for some of you it's been a hard series Um, You know, I I also just want to celebrate some of the fruit of what the Father is doing among us, that we're seeing healing and freedom and and transformation. And uh, God's change agent is his Holy Spirit. And so it's wonderful to see him move freely among us and open us up to to that. Um, Just with that in mind, I just wanted to say a couple of things about waiting on the Holy Spirit. Some of you will be not familiar with this at all. And so it's worth just reflecting. And um, I don't like harping on about the early days of the vineyard. I want to live in the here and now. Equally, I think there is a lot that we can learn from our forefathers and we would be a little bit daft to just chuck it out of the window and crack on uh, now without moments of reflection on the past we're not bound by the past but we can use it as a springboard to the future in a healthy way Um, in fact actually I, I wasn't there then I wasn't in the early days. The stream I was in at the time would have been highly uh, critical and sceptical of the vineyard. And it's funny now as I, as I look back. But I, I joined the vineyard after the, the founder, the guy who started some of it, had died. I never knew him. I was never part of uh, the thing that he was part of. Um, I'd always also say that actually he was someone who has had one of the greatest impacts on my own personal discipleship. And um, what is fascinating about that is... I never even met the guy. Um, equally, I, I, I kind of want you to know this. I don't follow him. I follow Jesus. It just so happens he is somebody who has revealed more of Jesus to me. So anyway, what I wanted to do today is just start by just telling you two quick stories. Um, many years ago, he was leading a, a signs and wonders conference up at the Harrogate Convention Center, and it was oversubscribed. The venue was full. They had a, like a secondary venue worship. I Apparently it was wonderful. Again, I wasn't there. He did smash the talk out of the park. I have actually heard it. It's, there's a little recording floating around somewhere. Anyway, it came to, to the ministry time at the end, and the conference is called the Signs and Wonders Conference. You know, So there's like quite a high expectation for the fact that the Lord is going to do something. And so what he did is they, they just waited, and they waited, and they waited in silence. And I, I guess I want to say this. We've got to be comfortable with waiting. It might feel uncomfortable, but we've got to become comfortable with the uncomfortable. And um, so, so let's do that because we just want the presence of God. Anyway, they wait for like three minutes and uh, just silence. And then they wait for five minutes. And actually in silence, that's quite a long time. And then they wait for 12 minutes. And then somebody just in the room kind of can't handle the silence and just start speaking out. And they give, they give this like word. I don't want to say it was a prophetic word, but it was like a word to say uh, that the spirit of God can't move in power because of all the unrepentant hearts and the stubbornness and the sin in the room. And um, John, in the way that he did, very lovingly but quite firmly kind of corrects that word and says, actually, I don't think that's right and I don't think it's helpful. Let's just wait kind of a bit awkward, but they, they kind of move on and they get past it. And anyway, after they've waited for quite a while, he just says, guys, hope you have a fantastic night's sleep. 
we'll see you all tomorrow. And uh, they, they all went home. And the next day, the Spirit of God knocked them off their feet. Many stories, I've heard stories, I've actually met people who were there, people who um, had their, they were blind and they had their sight regained and all, the, all kind of things. Anyway, I guess what I want to say is we've just got to become comfortable with waiting. Not jumping in, not hyping something up, not trying to do our thing, not trying to make something happen. We, we just want him and we want his thing. And we've got to become comfortable with that. That's the first story. I hope that makes sense. The second story is this. John had some really big decisions to, to make, and he was feeling a degree of pressure to get it right. So he said to his wife, Carol, I'm going to go and pray, and I'm going to go up a mountain, and I'm going to fast. And he says, I'm not going to come back until God speaks. So I might be gone for a while. Anyway, he leaves at 8 in the morning. And at 7.30 that evening, he uh, phones Carol from a payphone in McDonald's. And he says, uh, Carol, I couldn't find a place to stay. I was cold, I was wet, and I was hungry. So I'm on my third Big Mac, and then I'm going to come home. And uh, Carol says, like, don't, don't worry, John. Everyone's praying here anyway. You know, let's just carry on as we were. Come home, you don't need to be up the mountain. And I guess this is, this is the point I wanted to make. Um, I found something in that story that I was looking for. I found a blessing and confirmation that right from the earliest days of the vineyard, McDonald's has always been part of our heritage and our affiliation. Um, I'm joking. No, I don't know whether I am joking. But here's, here's a, a secondary point that you could take from it. Sometimes we've just got to relax. You know, let's not make it something that it isn't. Let's not make it more than it is. We're just an ordinary group of people who desperately, desperately want to seek and long for the presence of God. I'm not saying don't go up a mountain, but you don't need to go up the mountain. He speaks as we wait for him, and he speaks as we seek him. And sometimes he speaks more clearly, And sometimes that may feel for you slightly more distant. But I just want to assure you that he speaks and he longs to speak. And we don't have to hype that up. We don't have to shout. We don't have to exaggerate. You don't have to pour burning coals on your head. Some of you have never even thought of doing that, but I haven't. But you just don't need to do that stuff. We just have to persistently seek his presence and worship him. And what we really, really need is his presence. So let me just continue this little series we've been doing called It Takes a Village. Today's going to get quite interesting. I'm sorry for those of you here for the first time for the dedication, but I just want to start us on this this journey of leaning leaning us in towards thinking about discipline and disciplining our children. Now, I know that is a cultural hot potato right now. So let's just start by considering mercy. Because Jesus deals with three issues that I think are vital in, in every family, hypocrisy, integrity, and mercy. All three are learned and experienced in the closeness of family. Jesus taught that hypocrisy is pointing out the speck in someone else's eye whilst ignoring the plank in your own eye. That integrity is taking that plank out of your own eye. And mercy is removing the speck from somebody else's eye. Let me just read to you from the Bible. It says in Matthew 7... 
verse 1 to 5. It says, do not judge others and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrites. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. I think we'd do well, and what I think we could take from this, is if I'm going to show mercy, I've got to abandon hypocrisy and pursue integrity. And I need to move outside of myself to offer the other person genuine mercy. One of the greatest privileges I think we have as parents and as spiritual parents of others is to teach and reveal more of the heart of God, which is merciful. God shows his mercy to us, and we get to receive that and to show that and reveal that to others. Well, how do I uh, get people to love mercy? Actually, it starts by me realising that I need to deal with hypocrisy and choose integrity and start loving mercy. Jesus takes a simple speck or the analogy of it to teach us how our everyday choices lead to and help us reveal and show mercy. And here's the question I think we get to ask ourselves, well, there's a few questions. The first is this, am I teaching my children and my spiritual children hypocrisy? That's pointing out the wrong in someone else's life but being unwilling to admit or do something about the things in my own life. It's the, the age-old, do as I say, but not as I do. Romans 12, verse 9 says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. The bit we've got to drop is the pretend bit. It's so easy, isn't it? So easy to pretend, to pretend that we're listening, to pretend that we actually care am I teaching my children or my spiritual children hypocrisy the quest, second question is am I teaching my children or my spiritual children integrity surely that's the thing that we want to aim for it's not being without faults it's just being honest about your faults it's rejecting the temptation to blame others and being willing to take an honest look and reflection over our own lives your children and your spiritual children see your faults The older they get, the more aware of them they will become. They see your honesty and your willingness to see them and to change them and to put them on the table. Integrity, I guess, is who you are when you think no one else is looking. What's really fascinating with your children or your spiritual children is they get to see that integrity because they're looking more often than often you will realise or be aware of. And I, I again, I just want to really intentionally apply that to spiritual children. What you do and how you do it matters. One of the greatest influences you will have is found in your integrity choices, that no one um, but those close to you will see or know how you act and respond. If you've been undercharged or overcharged in the shop to go back have we had it a few times our kids like the the jaws drop when we've been undercharged and we go back and we realize and we pay the difference there it's moments like that are major moments in the lives of those that are watching you and those that are learning from you honesty 
And honestly, I want to say, take a look and have a reflection, a moment of reflection on your integrity. Am I teaching my children, my spiritual children, hypocrisy? Am I teaching them integrity? Finally, am I teaching them mercy? Jesus told us not to judge. Gosh, how easy it is to judge, isn't it? How judgmental we've become as a culture. So how do we do it? Because tolerance isn't enough. Our world needs mercy. It means that we don't see anyone as outside of the circle of God's grace, as beyond the bounds of his forgiveness and beyond the limits of our love. There's four ways I think we can show mercy. I just want to reflect on some of these this morning. It's through the way we choose not to frustrate others. It's through the way we discipline. It's through the way we show compassion. And it's through the way we forgive. We're just going to briefly unpack each of them. Don't panic. I'm not going to give equal time to to each one. But mercy starts with not exasperating your children. Ephesians 6 verse 4 says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. In the NIV, it says it virtually the same thing, but it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Let's just understand the context of that particular passage because Paul writes that with the backdrop that is sometimes very different to what he's writing in the Bible. And actually, if we miss that, we really miss something quite significant. He's writing to the first century, a Roman father had absolute control over his children. He could ask them to leave the house. He could sell them as slaves. He could even kill them with no legal penalty. A newborn would be placed at the father's feet to to pretty much determine their future. If he picked them up, they became part of the family. If, If he walked away, that baby would be sold. And into that world and into that time and that culture, God inspires these words about a father who cares enough about the fact that his, his child is a person and this child is created in his image and that he will be someone who strives not to exasperate his children. And as parents and as spiritual mothers and fathers, how, how do we do this and how we do this, I think, is really quite crucial. In those days, a newborn would be placed at the feet of the father to determine its future. It's not quite like that, but I do believe we we have this significant moment of investment to make in other people's lives that actually transforms who they are and how they live. Colossians 3.21, fathers do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. So what exasperates your children or your spiritual children? What frustrates them? I guess, as I was thinking about this, I think it's probably the same thing that frustrates you with somebody who has authority over you. So if you have any influence in any environment, be that as a parent, as spiritual children, as in the workplace, wherever or whatever it is, I just encourage you to think through a few things that might be helpful for you. Here's a few thoughts that will help us understand what it might be that exasperates or frustrates i'd say the first one is this unclear boundaries have you ever thought of it that way i'd encourage you to make some small changes that will have a big impact what are you struggling with at the minute because if the boundary isn't clear that is frustrating isn't it you'll find that in the workplace the second one is inconsistent discipline again think of it in the workplace one day your boss loves you The next day you're doing exactly the same thing and they're being passive aggressive. 
So what causes it to be that way? Is it them? Is it you? Are you tired? Are you distracted? Is it pushing a button in you from your upbringing? What would it take for you to find ways in terms of discipline that would allow it to be consistent? The third one would be unbalanced criticism. Everything tells you, doesn't it, that there's the, the 10 to 1 rule. For every one moment of correction, at least let that be offset with 10 moments of encouragement. If they grow under constant criticism, it will turn them in on themselves and it won't actually address their behaviour, it will crush their spirit. I think we've got to think this stuff through, even in how we relate and we relate to each other. The fourth one would be unreasonable demands. Again, it's so easy to do, isn't it, when we're tired and we're stretched. I've seen the, the social media backlash and over um, Prince... Is it Louis or Lewis, what, oh, however it is? But uh, you know at the Queen's Jubilee at the Platinum thing, he sat there, the kid's four, he's on the world stage... Every eye is, of course, looking at him. His parents have got the world's cameras on him, and he's got to sit on a chair for, like, five hours and be well-behaved. Of course, the guy's finding it challenging. There's an unreasonable demand, but just apply that in your own life or how you parent or how you relate to others. Unreasonable demands set us up to fail. The fifth one would be this, undeserved or unresolved anger. Anger often comes out sideways. We looked at some of it last week. But if you're mad at your boss, don't yell at your kids. If you're frustrated in the workplace, don't walk into that with your spiritual children. You know, if you're cross that your child has lied to you, don't leave it four days and let it fester because bitterness will grow. If there's, if there's any anger in you, Find ways to resolve it. And it takes great humility to admit our tendency to exasperate our children. And it takes even greater humility to act in new ways. And I want to encourage us to consider doing that. Also, just to say, some of you will have been on the receiving list of those five things that I just said. And I think, honestly, you will need to come again and afresh before Jesus and seek healing and wholeness because they will affect you in the days ahead if you don't. Four ways we can show mercy through the way we choose not to frustrate our children. That was the first one. The second one is through the way we discipline. You have a choice to discipline your children. Let, let me say this. Once you know why you discipline them, it becomes so much easier to know how to discipline them. We've got to understand the why to know the how. Discipline, I would say, is probably one of the greatest challenges you will face as a parent. It's also one of the greatest challenges we face in our interactions with each other. This will be one of the areas that will lead to one of the greatest disagreements often between parents. Often in a culture um, that has a failure currently often to discipline children, that has started, I think, to flow into our relationship with the Father God and how he disciplines us and our willingness to allow him to do that. Does that make sense? As culture steps back from its role and its responsibility, that often flows into our mindset that then flows into how we relate to God. And it's important that we are corrected and that we have environments where we are corrected. And I say that myself. I'm not just saying that to you. I'm like, I need regular correction. Paul in Ephesians gives us a practical bit of direction. Ephesians 6 verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children by anger, sorry, to anger by the way you treat them, rather 
bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Without discipline, I mean, we could say so many things, but one would be children learn to become selfish with the right kind of discipline. Children learn integrity for themselves and are compassionate and merciful towards others. So what's, what's the right kind? I think Paul, obviously genius really, but he uses a number of words. One of them is loving. Loving discipline is done for the child's sake, not for the parent's sake. The focus is on their needs and their growth, not on the parents. Hebrews 12 verse 10, for our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. There's there's a number of principles I think we can take from the way God disciplines us that holds, I believe, great wisdom for the way we might interact with others or discipline our own children. The first is this. Everyone needs to be disciplined. I've realised for some of you that may be hard to hear, but it is a truth and a reality. We simply cannot become everything that God intends for us without some measure of discipline because that's what he teaches and that's how he's taught us. God uses, I believe, so many ways to do it. You could say through the natural consequences of our actions by putting the challenge of truth before us and by placing other people in our lives to motivate us. If, if you, just take this example for me, if you put a donut and an apple in front of me, <laughs> it's not a hard choice, is it? I'm going to choose the donut every time. If you stick somebody else in that environment and do exactly the same thing, I would at least consider the apple before taking the donut. But do you, do you see what I mean? Apply that to life. Do you have and allow others to speak regularly into your life? Is your pride in the way of you being all that you could be. That's often the, the, the challenge or the trigger point is pride. We, don't, we think we know better. The second one is this, discipline is painful. I love this passage because I think it gives such a clear explanation. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those that are trained in this way. We don't often change by seeing the light. We often are changed by feeling the heat. Does that make sense? That's often how it works. I once heard it said, try to just discipline your child without some form of discomfort is like trying to lose weight without a diet or an exercise routine. I'd also say there is an age where children really need it. A lack of boundaries at certain ages is really quite dangerous. Children know, don't they? I actually think we know as adults sometimes. It moves from that line of being cheeky to naughty, and it happens very, very quickly. And if you neglect that moment, it'll increase the pain at a later time. Discipline is experienced both in the corrections we give and the consequences that we allow. I remember with uh, our eldest, Sophie, at a very young age, I used to um, quite intentionally and very, very gently place a hand on her front and her back and very lovingly I'd say, look at me, and I'd speak to her very softly and calmly, but I'd say something like, please do not do that again. And I'd explain why. And now, I want to be really honest, I would never shame her. I wouldn't do that in front of other people 
I think that's shaming a child. If others were there, I'd take it out of that space, out of their ear line or their eye line. Now I would say she's at a slightly different age where sometimes because I think we did that at an early age, you can do it just with a look. She would know that she's overstepping a boundary. Now she already knows she's overstepping the boundary. That's the point. That the look then can just reaffirm, yes, you are. Let's not do that again. Now, I'm not saying we've got it right. I'm not saying we've got the perfect children. I'm not saying it's not incredibly difficult because it is. And I'm not saying it's not something that's happened without blood, sweat, and tears. Actually, it has happened without blood, but it's definitely had sweat and tears. And actually, I'll be really honest, the tears have often been mine because it is very hard to discipline your children. It is very hard to discipline your spiritual children but to love them, we have to step in to these moments because afterwards there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who were trained in this way. The third thing is this. Discipline is for their benefit, not for your benefit. God disciplines us for our good. I want to discipline my children for their good. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with asking for something that you need. You just need to remember that it's your need rather than discipline for their good. If you just need a quiet house for half an hour, just because you're on your limit, you need to acknowledge that and that you're on your limit and you need it, not because they're actually then about to deliver it. So if they then don't deliver it, is that a discipline thing? Not, not really. Actually, that's just something you needed. Just be open and honest about it because discipline is for their benefit, not for your benefit. The fourth one, my short-term discipline should prepare them for God's lifetime of discipline. Hebrews 12, I think, if you look at it and pull it out, draws a clear distinction between us and God. Our discipline is for the short-term where we think it is best, but God disciplines us in all of our lives in order to bring qualities such as righteousness and peace into our lives. And therefore, as a parent, I'm just a small part I'm just an early part of a lifetime process of God's discipline in all areas of our children's lives. Now, it depends how you look at it. Personally, I find that incredibly liberating. It's not all on my shoulders. I won't and I cannot prepare them for everything they will face. I don't know everything they're going to face. I don't know everything you're going to face, but he does. And I think, therefore, he disciplines us as, as we do our best out of a motivation of love, but actually he has a far bigger picture and understanding of what he's doing. And therefore, we have to be teachable. We have to be correctable. Don't wait for it, is what I want to say. Seek it out. Soften our hearts and be moldable before the Spirit of God alongside others and allow them to dig into your life for gold. And for some of you, I mentioned it a moment ago, for some of you, that is going to mean dropping pride and letting people speak into your lives. So there's four ways, I think, to show mercy. The first is that we choose not to frustrate others. The second is through the way we discipline. The third is through the way we show compassion. David, in Psalm 103, verse 13, said this, the Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. God shows compassion as his children. To teach our children mercy, we've got to show them compassion. We have to find ways to show and reveal compassion without leading them to believe that there's no consequences for bad decisions. So how do we do that? Luke 6, verse 36, you must be compassionate just as your father 
is compassionate. God is compassionate. We've got to remember that, and yet he doesn't just allow us to escape the natural consequences of our sins. He continues to discipline us for our growth. That's how we've got to view it. That's how we've got to see it. It's for our growth. So compassion isn't just turning a blind eye. Actually, it's the hard work of being patient with somebody else's faults and forgiving sins at the same time encouraging continued growth and change. Encouragement that endures. That's really what compassion is. It's encouragement that endures. Now, there's loads of ways you can show compassion. Let me just give you a few pointers for those of you where it would be helpful. I'd say the first one is give them hope. There is so much power in hope. Putting our hope in God dramatically shifts our perspective and it shifts our values. Without hope, I live for what I can get now. With hope, I live for the future and what God might prepare for me. Without hope, I focus on myself. With hope, I focus onto the love of God and all that he has for me. That's the first one. The second one is give them patience. Patience is so much more than just being forced to wait. Patience actually is the pathway to transformation of the, of the, of the heart, really. It changes us. And it's interesting how much of that is in short supply right now. Because God is after our hearts, therefore he shows us patience and he shows us patient love. You are after your children's hearts. You're after your spiritual children's hearts. And parenting is more than getting a child to follow a prescribed set of actions. Anybody can do that. That's robotic. We don't program people for obedience, but we're part of God's plan to grow them towards becoming more and more like Jesus. The third one is this, give them a fresh start. Everybody needs a fresh start. Some of you need to give each other a fresh start. Wipe the slate clean. Start the day again. Give people opportunities just to snap out of stuff. If you hold them in the bad place, they're going to stay in the bad place. Think of the, think of the father in the prodigal son. The father puts a robe on his back. He puts a ring on his finger, he puts sandals on his feet and he cooks him a meal. The robe was a sign of dignity and love. When you give a fresh start, what you do is you give honour back. The ring was used in financial transactions. Now, what I'm, I'm not saying is, hey, give them your credit card when they've, when they've mucked up, but there is something powerful in having a sign of authority because what that is showing is it's, hey, I trust you again. It's not I trust you with everything, but I trust you with something. I'm going to find ways to show that I trust you. Get short accounts to get the trust back. Where they failed, help them back up. Then the sandals were, the, were really a sign of being a son rather than a servant. He accepted him back as a son because of the Father's grace. How powerful and how remarkable. It's an opportunity to extend grace. When you give somebody a fresh start, what you're doing is you're accepting them again. Then finally, the father celebrates with a feast. Don't you love how it ends? It ends with a feast. What a fresh start does is it starts with a spirit of celebration. It depends on what it is. I mean, like, don't go and kill the calf, but there are things you could do. Go out for a meal. The celebration is a sign that your belief is back in them, that you're back in a partnership, you're back in a unity, that, that it, this moment of celebration has started and it has meaning and it gives them hope and it gives them patience and it's that fresh start. Then the final one would be give them your understanding. 
Now, it can be so easy to minimise the hurts of a child. Oh, stop that silly crying. Actually, I'm glad God gives us understanding. Because when you take time to remember what it's like to be a child, sometimes it helps us reveal and show more compassion. Remember the second son in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son needed a fresh start, but what did the elder son need? He needed to be shown the father's compassionate understanding. And what I love is that the father went out into the field to find the older brother. And even though the, 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 the older brother refused to listen, the father continued to speak words of understanding. Compassionate understanding is not always expressed with words. Sometimes it's actually expressed physically. A hug is so much more powerful when a child feels alone than words are because we give them hope, patience, fresh start, and an understanding. The final thing I just wanted to reflect on this morning as we learn to show mercy is forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, instead be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Could God be any clearer with what he said? God forgave me, so I need to forgive you. And we've got to take that seriously. We need to see lack of forgiveness as like radioactive waste in our souls. It's a big deal. And it needs to be dealt with quickly and immediately. The longer you struggle to forgive, the more bitterness grows and bitterness leads to barriers in relationship. And you can get to the point when bitterness becomes bigger than the original offence that actually caused you to feel bitter in the first place. As with forgiveness, we can extend compassion. We forgive and we extend compassion. What's, what is compassion? It's really just trying to be like Jesus. Matthew nine thirty six. when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Don't, don't try and do this. Honestly, don't try and do that in your own strength because you will wear out. You need the compassion of God to empower you to give compassion beyond yourself to others. So there's, there's four ways to show mercy. It's through choosing not to frustrate others. It's through the way we discipline. It's through the way we show compassion. And the final one is through the way we forgive. And I know I've just touched on it, but it's so important almost we go there again because compassion and forgiveness are so linked together. Let's just look specifically at forgiveness. Time is short and this is a huge topic, so I'm just kind of going to gloss over it slightly. But forgiveness unblocks and unlocks families. This is a really big deal for some of you. It'll also release something physically. It's not just the, the biological family. Actually, this is really important. We understand this as spiritual children as well among us. A few weeks back, um, I... I touched on some of the story that we find in Genesis 43. And I just want to briefly touch on it again as an insight what can happen to a family when it's wronged and the deep resentment that can build within the four walls of that family unless you do something to provide the forgiveness outlet. So in Jacob's family, the wrong had actually been done inside the family itself. However, the, wherever the, the, the cause of the deep-seated unforgiveness comes from, whether it's in the family or outside the family, the result is always the same. 
the fruit of it is always the same. We've got to find ways. And I invite you just in this moment to look not only at your own family but, uh, and the family that you grew up in, but also that that you almost spiritually oversee. And I know this is hard for some of you, but we've kind of got to go there. Because if you experience a realisation that you may have been caught up in unhealthy patterns, I pray for you even this morning that you would see that God provides for your family right now the promise of redemption and change. I think that's what we see in this story. So here's a few scenarios. I'm not going to read the whole passage because we'd be here for uh, probably too long. But it says, um, Jacob, position one is Jacob became the defeated skeptic. So Jacob said in Genesis 43, verse 13, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. That's the position of a defeated skeptic, the sense of powerlessness, not being able to do anything, whilst also being sure that another tragedy is just around the corner. That's the defeated skeptic. Often I would say that happens to the eldest in a family and they can fall into that rather than being the hope carrier they can actually feel that all the hope has been drained out of them. They've just had to keep giving it and keep giving something beyond their resource. And you've just taken too many knocks to go again. You, you stand in a place of being defeated. The second position is that of, of Judah. The older brother in the family actually took on the responsible martyr position. That's the place that he played. Genesis 43 verse 8. Send the boy with me and we will be on our way. I personally guarantee his safety. You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Then let me bear the blame forever. It's the the, my shoulders are really broad. Put all of the blame, whatever happens, onto me. But what happens if the problem is somebody else's responsibility? Or if the problem, sorry, or if they're, they're making these grand statements without actually out ever admitting some of the past failings. All the martyr complex really does in that moment is become another piece in a broken family. For some of you, you will find yourself in that martyr position. Then you've got the brothers who are the innocent bystanders. Genesis 43 verse 7, the men kept asking his questions about our family. They replied, He asked, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? So we answered his question. How could we know what he would say? Bring your brother down here. Aside from the odd comment from Reuben, most of the brothers didn't say anything. They didn't get involved. Their brothers sold into slavery, and yet they kept it secret from their father. It's the how did we know? It's not our fault. I'm just a victim of the circumstances. That's how that position plays out. Then you've got Benjamin, who is the sacrificial lamb. It's decided that Benjamin will go with the other brothers to get the food from Joseph in Egypt. The whole chapter then is about whether or not they'll take Benjamin with them. And what I find really fascinating is Benjamin doesn't even get a word. He doesn't even get a say in whether he's part of this. There's often a Benjamin you may quite easily readily identify with that position because he's broken by the fallout of the unforgiveness and he's the victim. And that often in a family can be the youngest or the weakest. You just end up becoming the victim of the fallout and unforgiveness and unrepentance in the wider family. And they can end up actually sometimes in physical and emotional danger as a result of being in that place and that role. 
And then the final position is the one of Joseph. Joseph is the one who holds the keys to the change. When a family is broken because a family member needs to forgive, the key to change is normally held by the one who can do the forgiving. Of course, others can heal. Of course, others can move on and seek to live well. But there needs to be a sense of release and there needs to be a sense of renewal in a family's interactions and conversations. And the thing that will unlock it and release it is normally always forgiveness. And it's funny, that's the thing that Jesus gives us because of the power of the cross. It's always forgiveness and it's always the thing that we need. The one who could hold the most bitterness in the story of Joseph is the one who could bring and release the whole thing. Joseph didn't immediately forgive his family. Sometimes I think we think he did, but actually he didn't. Those that are deeply hurt him, he tested them. He gave them different positions at a meal to see if he could trust them, and then he hid some stuff in their bags. You don't have to be able to trust somebody to forgive somebody. Honestly, I think that's really important. Some of you are like, I can't forgive them because I don't trust them. You don't have to be able to trust them to forgive them. Restoration and forgiveness are separate things. Forgiveness can be immediate. Restoration can take some time and may not naturally happen. Holding resentment, though, in your heart is like building your home on a toxic waste site. Guilt can motivate forgiveness, and that's dangerous because actually, really, all that really can motivate us is God's love. When you come to realize how much he's forgiven you, you start to realize and receive the strength to forgive others. And no matter how that deep that pain may run, some of you need to consider what it would look like to forgive others. Don't hold that nettle any longer than you need because it will hurt you and it will hurt others. Some of you will need to seek out environments where you can realize that and understand that and explore that and start to release forgiveness over others. I hope that's helpful. Why don't we stand? And we just, Steph's going to join me. We're just going to do what I said at the start. Let's just have a moment of waiting on the Holy Spirit. If, if you're new in this environment, you might just want to close your eyes or hold out your hands or just have a moment to be still, not distracted by the people around you. Father, I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would send your Holy Spirit. The the, the manifest presence of God among us. Lord, we welcome you. So hard sometimes, isn't it, not to be distracted? I just want to encourage you to just press in. Wait on the Lord. That's how we renew our strength. We wait on him. And that's him. Let's just wait. Some of you now. Some of you now are just, there's an awareness. That's him. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence. For those of you that <clears throat> can acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is, is resting on you, I can see him kind of physically resting on some people around the room. Why don't you come to the front? Um, just an acknowledgement of that. But there's others of you that may not be responding physically, but you just know that the Holy Spirit is, um, is with you. I think for some of you, it's almost like you, you can feel like a, like a breeze on your face. Um, and 
that breeze isn't coming from anywhere. So you know it's the Holy Spirit. So there is a number of you who can already see the Holy Spirit at work. So before we share any, any other words or senses that we, that we might have, I would just love for you to, to come to the front so that we can pray for you. I think um, some of you, look, there's like you've just felt a dryness for quite a while. You've, you've just like um, the father's just felt distant. I just encourage you to step out again. Uh, I think there's somebody here where you've got like a pain from from your armpit on your right arm run, runs all the way down to your fingers. Just a uh, it's, I think it's like an intermittent pain uh, for someone I think you have a a pain in your uh, teeth it's on the right hand side on the your lower jaw um, and it's the third tooth in if you include the wisdom tooth I mean, you've got a pain there and I think for either of those people I think if that if you do respond to that I think actually more than anything the Lord this morning just wanted to specifically get your attention so I'd encourage you to share that with the person who's praying for you I think there is somebody here I think you may even be here for the first time uh, you're, and therefore this might slightly freak you out but I think you're a roofer um, and I, I think I'm saying that purely because the Lord just wanted to get your attention this morning I just want to say, would you let somebody stand with you and pray with you? I don't want to um, move us on from the moment we're in. So I just encourage you to stay uh, sensitive to the Spirit of God. But there's a lot of people all over the room and a number at the front who are receptive to what the Lord is doing. And if you're not currently receiving, I just encourage you to, to come and join some of these people and pray for them. If you're, if you're in a small group, would you just join some of these guys? We just ask that there's somebody there of the, the same sex. If you've not been in a room like this before, we're just going to spend a bit longer just waiting. We don't always see it in the moment. What often people's story would be was Jesus was healing me and freeing them. He's here and he's so kind. There's probably another four, five guys equally there's people all over the room people in the room too who would just acknowledge that you've been on the receiving end of an unfair discipline Discipline that um, doesn't look like the, the discipline that we see from God. And that's kind of created a warped sense of understanding of who the Heavenly Father is. And uh, if that's you, I would just I invite you to come and be prayed for. Just let's let the Holy Spirit reset that, minister to you and um, heal. Heal those wounds and, um, and build you up again in a way that the loving Father does.
Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.